Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Alert. I am James Huang. I'm Dave Rome. And I'm Kaylee Fritz. Well, it is now, uh, I guess we're in the second week of May here. And, well, we're still in mostly lockdown mode here in Colorado and in Sydney. Um, so, I mean, unfortunately, it's going to be another Nerd Alert without our resident pro mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Group Pedo. Sad. But things are starting. It is very sad. But things are starting to ease up a little bit here in Boulder. And I think they are in Australia as well. So hopefully we'll be able to add him in sometime soon. Although Zach is kind of grumpy and he doesn't really like answering mechanic questions. So I'm not sure if he's really regretting not being on the <laughs> podcast right now. No, he actually mentioned it to me the, the other day. He's like, hey, are we, so we, we going to do one this week? And I was like, ah, we probably shouldn't quite yet because we have to you know, be in the same place. And I guess we could just give him a mic. I have mics I could give him. But my plan is to next week meet Zach in a park somewhere and we have nice long xlr cables and we'll just i'll give him one you know wipe it off and i'll take the other one and stand 10 feet away and we'll make a podcast that way that's the plan or or we could like you know the three of us pull up in, in our cars somewhere in a parking lot like just park next to each other like crack the window open like feed the cable in <laughs> would that work podcasting in the times of pandemic <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a bit weird it's it's definitely a bit weird it is a little weird but on the bright side uh, Dave, as far as I know, you this is correct for you as well. I mean, the three of us are thankfully still able to ride outside, albeit with some restrictions, varying depending on location. So that's obviously a bummer on the one hand, but on the other, it's also prompted us all to do a little bit more exploring at home. And as it turns out, we've all found some new stuff to ride that's practically in our backyard. So Dave, you mentioned the other day that you actually found, I mean, you're pretty much in like downtown Sydney, sort of. I'm in suburbia. But yeah. Okay. Well, still, I mean, you're you're in Sydney proper, and you know you actually found some single track. You said like pretty much in your backyard. So what's that like? Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, we've got a fair bit of single track around here. I'm in the greener side of Sydney, but uh, you know where people go to bed at like eight p.m. and there's no no bars with liquor licenses. But it's uh it's good riding. And <laughs> Dave, uh, Rome, you live in a retirement yeah, I community. Guess- yeah, borderline. Uh, all my neighbors are over 80. Let's put it that way. Uh, but it's quite, uh, It's perfect for doing a podcast. And uh, yeah, uh, single track fairies have been busy by the looks of it. So yeah, found some new single track to add to the existing single track and it's good times. All those neighbors are going to love it when you sneak down in the middle of the night and drill holes in the wall that you're not supposed to drill holes into. Kaylee, that was a secret. <laughs> For those listening at home, I, I need to hang up some bikes, but uh, I also am not going to hang up some bikes. Not legally, anyway. <laughs> yeah, not with permission. But uh... Kaylee, I actually stumbled upon the discovery you made uh, by sort of looking at your wife's Instagram page, which like, now that I think about it is, is going to sound super creepy. But, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, Meg and I are friends. We, we check out what we're doing, whatever. And, and she posted the other day that she had found this new... Uh, this new switchback in town here and I looked at it and like where is that and then she told me and I was like oh it's pretty sweet right it's super sweet and like it it, it conveniently is sort of you know just off of a regular kind of like my regular hour loop that I do from the house here anyway so it was turned into like this really cool little thing we don't want to get too far into the weeds here this is a tech podcast after all uh, I think maybe we should talk about some news because uh, actually, a whole bunch of pretty exciting new stuff just dropped in the last few days. And I guess maybe the most important of which may be the new specialized Diverge gravel bike. 
And this is kind of a big deal. I mean, the Diverge, I think might it, well, I think it might actually be, if not the close to specialized, like kind of like biggest selling drop bar family. And it's a super popular bike. And there are a lot of changes on this thing. And they went with a, a pretty drastic change in geometry. They kind of borrowed a page from mountain bike playbook. They uh, obviously increased the tire clearance. There is still this future shock up front, a little micro suspension, although now it's, you know, future shock 2.0 kind of borrowed from the Roubaix. And it does, I mean, I, I've been riding a little bit over the last couple of days and it's pretty good. Can we have a discussion about the flat bar bike? This is really what I'm interested in. I, I so, oh. so, we're we, going to dive we, right into that. Huh? We, ha we have to. We have to. We'll, we'll okay, talk about the geometry. We'll talk about the future shock. We'll talk about all the other things. We have to talk about the flat bar because this is, a, this is, this is an important moment in the history of bicycles because what, what Specialized has done here <laughs> is they have so released. It's a golden era, isn't it? It's the, it's the golden era of flat bar gravel bikes. <laughs> it's a hybrid. Well, it, so, it's a hybrid from like so, the late 90s. Yeah. Here's the thing. What Specialized has done is release the Diverge, an aluminum version. So not the super fancy carbon one, the aluminum version with a flat bar. Same future shock. It's, it's a longer frame. The tire clearance is still sort of in that gravel realm. Uh, it has the future shock. It has a rigid fork. It has a flat bar. It is, by any definition, a hybrid bike <laughs> or a hardtail mountain bike. A rigid mountain bike, actually. So, this is important because Specialized, one of the world's largest bike brands, has decided to bring this bike to the world and call it a flat bar gravel bike. How do you two feel about this, James? What 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 comes to mind when you see this thing? You know, I ha I have such mixed opinions on this thing because, I mean, yes, yeah, Specialized is they brought out this flat bar gravel bike, but you know, it's it's they're not the first company to do this, of course. I mean, really tiny brands have, have been doing this for quite a while. And, you know, people have been doing this themselves for quite a while. Like, you know, Rodeo Labs, for example, we've, we've brought up that company in quite a bit. I mean, they're based here in Denver, Colorado. And, um, you know, they show they show pictures of their, you know, their trail donkey, for example, with with flat bars all the time. And people people do ride their gravel bikes like that for when they want to get kind of particularly rowdy. But. I guess it's sort of like, you know, we always talk about kind of blurring the space between a gravel bike and a mountain bike, and this just muddies the waters even more. For example, Taylor Finney's allied, so he's he's like an allied sponsored athlete or rider. He's not an athlete anymore. Rider. He's still an athlete. Anyway, Taylor Finney rides an, an allied, and he put a flat bar on it. It's super cool. The bike is super, super cool. He was down riding it in Arizona over the winter. Rad bike. I, I, for a long time, have said that I would love to put a flat bar on my Trek checkpoint just to just to see how it goes, just to see whether I liked it. You know, leave the same 40 millimeter tires on there, leave the same gearing, leave everything else the same, just throw a flat bar on, see if I like it. Because, to be perfectly honest, I like cross-country bikes. I like hardtails. I like, you know, light full suspension bikes. I don't see any real, personally... I don't see any real problem with this, except for the naming, right? If I think calling it a gravel bike kind of freaks people out, but at the end of the day, I think the bike looks awesome. We just put a we just put a poll on our Instagram, and it said, "It's a it's do you want the do you prefer the drop bar diverge or the flat bar diverge?" I voted 
for the flat bar diverge. <laughs> and and I am it is eight percent to ninety-two percent in favor of the drop bar the drop okay, bar Dave, diverge. <laughs> Dave, I feel like you need to bring us back to reality here because I feel like I'm I'm getting flashbacks of field tests in Sedona when we were talking about the Marin Gestalt and the Jammer Jr. and that thing, and Kaylee was talking about how it was all awesome and whatever. And Dave, you and I are both kind of like, no, Kaylee, you're wrong. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, here? well, first thought is somehow, I mean, gravel is really taking all the things that we once found really dorky and lame in cycling and making them cool. So like handlebar bags <laughs> and strapping a whole bunch of accessories to your bike and running Fanny packs. running tires that aren't quite mountain bike tires but are like too knobby for the road. Um, and now hybrid bikes which are actually kind of cool i have to say um so yeah that's that's where we are today in 2020 um and fluoro's back in as well so you know high vis everywhere um so yeah it's it's definitely i i feel bad for making fun of my future self 15 years ago so which one flat bar or drop bar for you i actually reckon i would go the flat bar just just purely because oh, whoa, whoa yeah, just i did not expect that purely not because it makes the most sense but just purely because I, I think i'd have more fun on it right so yeah i mean it looks like a really fun bike um and i've done like flat bar cycle cross bikes before and especially with single speed they make they're actually a heap of fun and this thing kind of just takes me back to that james i, I think i'm still well hmm. yeah I, like I said, I have I have mixed feelings on this because on the one hand, you know my my everyday mountain bike is sort of a, a burlier trail bike. I mean, I, I I sold my enduro bike and I kind of went shorter and travel this time around. But you know, but I I have that as my everyday. But I also have a a, a single speed two nine hardtail, which is a decidedly kind of dumb bike to have in Boulder. Um, but I still have fun riding it. And you know, Kaylee, you and I have talked about this certainly about. Ha- sort of the, the the giddiness that you feel from kind of being underbiked in a situation because you know when you're underbiked on on a bit of terrain that is really not particularly challenging that's kind of what makes it fun i mean in, in all honesty i mean i know that you know kayla you don't you know not, not to not to bring up a sore subject again but you know you don't have the rosiest view of cyclocross but you know that it's one of the things that i really enjoyed about cyclocross was the fact that you were oftentimes kind of underbiked in a lot of situations and that's what made it entertaining on the dumbest bike ah, i've ever seen yes. <laughs> like cross bikes are stupid uh okay here's the thing i part of it is where we live boulder colorado uh the spiritual home of the international mountain bike association which has successfully turned most of our trails into sidewalks. sidewalks. And so, yeah, you can ride pretty much pretty much all of these sort of county-maintained or city-maintained trails. You can ride on a gravel bike, a cross bike. I've ridden them on my road bike before on occasion. That's how not bumpy they are. And so... You can almost do them on rollerblades. You can you pretty much rollerblade them, skateboard, whatever you want to do. Uh so that is that's sort of where we're coming from here in that like a lot of my rides are 40-50% dirt and pavement like dirt roads and pavement and then the other 50% is like these trails that are not particularly difficult and that if I take my if I take my Trek Slash out there with 160 mil fork and 2.5 inch tires I feel like I'm riding a couch around and frankly even a cross country bike even a super fast cross country bike is often less fun 
than just totally underbiking myself. Now, this bike in particular, I think what we need here is we need another name for it. Now, bear with me, because I know that a lot of our listeners out there hate the fact that we have to name everything, and I'm kind of with you. It'd be great if we could just be like, here is a bicycle. Use it however <laughs> you would like to. That that would be great, right? But no, we can't do that. We must name everything. And so we have gravel bikes. We have this quote-unquote flat bar gravel bike, which, to be abundantly clear, is a hybrid or a very bad mountain bike. It's one of it's those. It's a flavel bike. It's a flavel bike. I was going to say Groundton bike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have to put up another poll. Flavel bike or Groundton bike? Ground, it's either a Groundton bike or a flavel bike. It is definitely not a gravel bike, and it is definitely not a mountain bike because if it's a mountain bike, it is literally the world's worst <laughs> mountain bike. And if it's a gravel bike, it's not that good a gravel bike either because. A real gravel bike is designed for, you know, gravel roads, not single track. And so, therefore, you don't really need a flat bar and you don't really need all the other things that come with this bike. So, Groundton bikes, Flavel bikes, <laughs> whatever, we're, right, well, whatever we want to call it. I, I, we'll, put, I, we'll put the, we'll put the, pole, the pole up and then we will forevermore refer to flat bar bikes of this type with that new nomenclature. Flavel bikes, definitely. It's definitely a flavel bike. I like grounded bike personally. I'm flavel a big. Bike I'm a big. Sounds better to me. A flavel bike. It's, <laughs> it somehow seems more fun. Like grounded bike just seems like just, it. It doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Flavel bike. It's a flavel bike. I'm gonna get stickers made. I'm gonna get stickers made. I'm just gonna force the issue and just make it make it happen. Anyway. <laughs> Enough about the Diverge. I was hoping to have a serious conversation about how this thing was as a drop bar gravel bike, and that is clearly not going to happen here. However, you can certainly go over to cyclingtips.com and check out the very in-depth article that we have from Dave Shoddy Everett on the new Diverge. And feel free to drop in a comment or question, and we will do our best to keep the conversation going. And make sure to check out the video on YouTube as well. But speaking about mountain bikes not flavel bikes or grounton bikes other big release or I, I should say a whole flurry of releases related to mountain bikes came from shimano uh dave you were the one who ended up having to jump on this grenade so to speak because <laughs> it kind of fell into your time zone unfortunately what do we have here from shimano or what I, I guess at this point what don't we have from shimano that came out over the last few days there's a lot um so yeah the big story is dior uh, which is sort of like the entry level into Shimano's proper mountain bike group. So it's sort of the the level where parts stop being truly recreational and start being actually considered worthy of true off-road riding. Uh, and they have completely overhauled this group. Um, Dior kind of, it felt like it, would, it was a bit dated previously. Uh, you know, SRAM, their, their main competitor, has had 12 speed at, at, at a similar price point for well over a year now. Um, and I believe Dior was still sitting at 10 speed. Um, so yeah, you weren't seeing it too often on on many new bikes. A lot of a lot of brands had shifted to to SRAM product. Uh, but yeah, this new Dior, there's three versions of it. Uh, Shimano is doing 12, 11, and 10 speed versions. Um, and what's really cool is each respective speed is fully cross compatible with the other respective speeds in Shimano's lineup. So this new Dior actually offers a 
service parts and even upgrade options for those currently running Shimano 10 speed or uh, or 11 speed. Awesome. I mean, it's certainly a big deal because I mean, Shimano has been, you know, as Dave, as you noted in your article, you know, Shimano has been kind of late to the game a little bit with trying to kind of go head to head with SRAM. I mean, sort of historically, SRAM has been kind of the innovator, and then Shimano has. I mean, even though this isn't really how it goes, I don't think, but Shimano seems to have kind of taken the ideas and kind of digested them and kind of gave it their own Shimano philosophy, so to speak, and then they come out with their version of it a couple years later. And I have to think that we are going to see an awful lot of Dior now on bikes that maybe currently come with, you know, NX or GX or something like that from SRAM. Yeah, I mean, I've I've ridden, you know, I'm sure James and Kayla, you're in the same boat. I've ridden plenty of the new Shimano 12-speed and XTR, XT, even SLX, and it is fantastic. Um, even down to the SLX level, it shifts so wonderfully. Um, in my opinion, it's it's their best group in a long, long time. Uh, and the, just the way it shifts under power, I mean, they redesigned the way the, the cassette and chain engage with each other um, and the shift ramps and... Uh, partly because of the demands for the e-bike world, but it just it it is incre- it is really impressive how it shifts uh, under a lot of load um, and just yeah it's it's quite hard to fault. Agreed. There was a comment underneath your story, Dave, that I wholeheartedly hmm. agree with, which is mountain bikes are super expensive these days. They they the top end keeps getting higher and higher and higher, right? And it feels like you have to spend a ton of money to get a good one. But I'm not sure that's totally true because I feel yeah, like yeah. particularly now that we've got this Dior group, I'm trying to think of a better time to be building a budget-oriented mountain bike, right? Stuff is so good at now all the way down to this kind of level. And that definitely was not the case not too long ago. So, you know, if, if you're building a, a, a budget hardtail or a budget trail bike and Dior is what's in your budget, you're going to end up with a really freaking good bike. And that that's 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 pretty awesome. That's somewhat unique, I think, over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, li- life is pretty good for those people yeah. right now. So anyway, kudos to Shimano. Kudos to SRAM, too. Uh, you, you know, making really good stuff at, at prices that sort of regular people can actually afford, which is awesome. I lo- love to see it. And I know we've said it a bunch of times on this podcast and other podcasts and elsewhere at Cycling Tips. But, you know, we are we're, we're, we're pretty dedicated to, to testing and reviewing and using this like stuff at this level. Right. We did a whole bunch in the gravel bike field test. We had a whole you know, we had bikes down to a thousand bucks. We're going to continue to do that because I, I love this stuff. I mean, you know, when I'm when I'm building my own mountain bike, I still don't want to spend that, you know, spend the money on an XTR group, right? That stuff's so yeah. expensive. And you rip a derailleur off and it's hundreds of dollars. Why would I do that? You know, an XT or even a Dior, like that stuff, it's it's now so good. So really, yeah. kudos to the whole bike industry for, for, I think, for the first time in a little while, settling in and paying attention to these groups as much as anything else 105 is the same yeah. way yeah and it's not it's not just shimano and and tram like i just literally installed a, a group from microshift which is incredibly cheap and a very cool story and you know 10 speed group with a uh an 11 to 48 tooth cassette um so yeah i mean that's something I'm, i've just got to actually ride now and spend some time on it but you know it is something we're reviewing and it's you know it's a 300 dollars group it's it's amazing to see 
And I know that a bunch of people are waiting for my long-term review of Shimano Tiagra, and I swear that is still coming. I promise you. Sure, James. But that stuff's sure. really that stuff's really yeah, Tiagra's good. Tiagra's amazing. Hey, you know what? I I I've been busy, Dave. I've got things to do. <laughs> it's got bread to bake, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I was just gonna say <sighs> a lot of pretzel buns. <laughs> Math, math to teach. We did, we uh, we did social studies today. You know, my kids learning about like e- economics now, like producers and consumers, okay. and hmm. complicated know, supply and demand. You know, the curriculum for six year olds is pretty pretty rigorous these days. Wow, Returning to bicycles. <laughs> even, Returning to even, bicycles. I'm, I'm just gonna throw this last little bit in here. Even the Shimano Sora group that I rode mm-hmm. at the gravel bike field test was on the Giant. That was fine. It was great. Pretty good. If you like, if you, if you didn't look down and you didn't count the number of clicks, right? Because it, it was, I think it was, is it nine or ten speed? I think it's nine speed. I think yeah. it was a nine. Instead of, if you didn't, cl- you know, count the number of shifts and you just f- like felt the engagement, felt the shifts, you would you would really struggle to feel any significant difference between that and definitely up to one hundred five, possibly even Altegra. It's 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 amazing stuff and so cheap. The golden age of inexpensive. Man, we're, the gold, we're in the golden age of everything right now. It's the best time to be alive, I mean, except pod, for the pandemic. These podcast titles are getting really boring. <laughs> Moving on. I mean, this really was not intended to be a big mountain bike episode for Cycling Tips, but since we are on the topic of mountain bikes at the moment, Kaylee, I mean, this sort of is a nice segue to kind of like the main thing that we wanted to talk Indeed. about here. Not too long ago, you were on a trail ride with your lovely Trek mm-hmm. Slash, and you had a bit of an incident, shall we say? What happened here? Well, uh, basically, yeah, I was on a I was on a trail that I that will re- remain unnamed, and it's quite rowdy, and uh, I just I just there's like this section with a bunch of rocks in it, and I basically I, I was gonna boost up and over and try to land on the other side, and I did. And no, no, I made it. It. Uh, it. It was it was like it was no, nobody's fault. That was the thing about this particular incident. So, anyway, I boost up, and in the process of boosting up in the sort of the front of this thing, I kick up a rock that must have been, I don't know, like two or three fists, like a, a big rock, right? And at this point in the trail, I went back and looked later. I'm going about like 36, 37 kilometers an hour, like hauling right it's sort of this double track kind of thing and so i kick up this rock and it smacks into my down tube at 36 37 k an hour and and makes that very characteristic horrible carbon fiber makes a terrible noise uh through the rubber protector on the down tube and i get to the bottom of the trail and i'm like i think i just broke my bike I should say this is like I think I had the bike for like a month <laughs> or something like that. It's like I'm pretty sure I just broke my bike, and I look down and I like sort of peel back the little rubber bit which has come unglued because it got hit so hard and flexed so much, and I'm like, "Yep, that's a big crack right in my down tube." And so uh, it sat, uh, it just stayed that way for a little while, and I rode it cracked for like I don't know two or three months or something. Uh, and then I actually mentioned it on this podcast and someone at Trek warranty was like, Hey, do you want to get a crash replacement on that? <laughs> I was like, I probably should at some point not ride the broken crack frame anymore. 
so yeah got a new bike have been riding it since then and then it occurred to me carbon fiber can be repaired and so did a little bit of research i had done some research for a previous story on carbon fiber repair and uh, right and then you went to the hardware store and bought a bunch of jb weldon jb weldon fiberglass and then it's all done now right? i just Is bought 26 happened? rolls of duct tape and it's really it's it's quite um wide now my down tube but <laughs> and gray, and gray. <laughs> but i can draw on it and stuff it's really great <laughs> no no so i so I, I i called up ruckus and i sent them a picture and i was like hey guys can you fix this and they were like totally and they're like actually we see this all the time this is like the most common kind of break on a mountain bike and so i sent the frame into them to get fixed and i thought that this would be a perfect little case study in in fixing carbon fiber and i thought that i would give them a ring uh, i asked them to take some photos of the whole process so we're actually going to have a story up on the site not too far from when this 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 uh this podcast goes up about kind of the process and i just got them on the phone and chatted through what they do to repair a carbon fiber frame because i think that i think that a lot of people aren't totally aware of how repairable these things are they they really you can fix almost anything at the end of this conversation i do ask them what they won't fix and there are a couple things but almost anything on a bike frame they can fix not not just them but like lots of different carbon repair companies can fix this stuff uh so you know if, if you if you crash in a crit and you break your top tube in half if you are a mount, on a mountain bike and you smack your down tube if you do something dumb and your bike tips over and your chain stay or your or your seat stay breaks you can get that fixed and you can get it repainted and yeah it's a couple hundred bucks but it's still way cheaper than a new frame all right well let's take a listen to this conversation that you had with the guys from ruckus and then and then we'll have a little chat yeah. about it. So let's give that a listen. Sean Small, the owner and lead engineer here at Ruckus Composites. Uh, my name's Dan Steinley, and I am the customer success manager at Ruckus Composites. Customer success manager. I like that as a title. Thank you. It, uh, I think that was like <laughs> third or fourth iteration of that one, actually. So, yeah, yeah, we play with them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we wanted to get you guys on the podcast this week uh, because, well, I ran into a problem that I think a lot of our listeners have probably run into at some point or another throughout their cycling life, which is that I broke a carbon fiber frame so let's start with let's just start at the beginning so i got in touch with you guys i said hey i have this i have this cracked frame you said well yes that's that's what we do and please send it over and so i did when you get a frame like this uh what's the sort of what's the first thing that happens from a i don't know diagnostic standpoint i guess is probably the first thing that goes down yeah, well, now, I mean, the first thing that goes down now, actually, is we let the box hang out for 24 to 48 hours before we go and touch it. But, <laughs> yeah, totally. That's like, <laughs> that's the new that's the new step of the whole process. But no, normally it goes through like a, a check in because a lot of our a lot of stuff gets sent in to us from out of state. 
So it comes in, we unbox everything, we save and reuse the packing material, uh, and then it goes to Sean, who just does a general check-in, um, and then, you know, it'll take serial number, serial number photos of the bike, uh, we'll put in, you know, several reference pictures into the case, just so we have, a, have it totally built out. Um, and then uh, once that's all done, Sean uh, goes to ultrasound, usually. Um, so I'll let you explain a little bit yeah. more about that process. Yeah, we basically track everything as one major case. So from the customer description, and we always do kind of a light visual inspection as well, just to kind of confirm the customer story. Uh, we've gotten a lot of wacky customer stories over the years, and sometimes, you know, you never know what's up. Um, but you, you mean like uh, just riding along type stories? I was just riding along and this like, you know, stuck a hole through the side of my down tube or something. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah we get Dan, how do you feel yeah, about that? Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I, this is why I'm the customer success manager is because I am our customer. I did. I was just riding along and broke my bike uh, and didn't, I didn't even know it for three weeks or something like that. So yeah, it, it, it happens all the time. And you really feel like such an idiot when it does happen and you don't even know it too. So yeah. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah. It's very real. Yeah, so what I usually do is uh, I'll pop it into our stands and kind of visually check it all over, kind of confirm the customer's case, see if there's anything else going on. A lot of times there's a lot of other uh, damages. You know, if someone falls on a seat stay, usually there's more than one damage spot. Uh, it could be down by the drop up and up by the break amount. So we know what to look for with basically every case scenario. But I usually go then into just our um, ultrasound inspection. And that's where I think our kind of uniqueness and kind of dedication to the sciences and engineering and just kind of why we're different. We go in and scan it with our ultrasound machine. And there I can determine, determine you know, how thick that area is. And I can actually map out the damage extent. Like on your down to, we've seen that same damage on, I don't know, almost every mountain bike in the last two years. Yeah, it's pretty common. We probably have about four or five in the shop at a time for the same damage. Um, so we know what we're looking for. And those damages generally radiate pretty big. As you said, you know, when you put someone basically going real fast downhill, they have a lot of momentum. And, you know, some people hit, boy, they've hit everything you can imagine. Logs, rocks, signs, bumpers, you name it. So the damage goes pretty far. So at that point, yeah, I just scan it, map it out, trace it out for my repair tech, and uh, usually put the how much carbon we need to put in it and any general notes for him. So are you like, so you scan it and then are you literally like taking a pen and drawing on the frame? Like, Hey, yeah. we can see the crack goes up to this point. I mean, cause I'm assuming, so my bike, for example, just to sort of, because this is our use case, right. Uh, or our, our, our case study, you know, it, like the, it was clearly cracked, very obviously. Could see it with my eyes, uh, but it wasn't like super soft or anything. And I didn't really know. And that's part of the reason why I just kept riding. And I was like, ah, "I'll be fine. It probably won't break. And if that part breaks, I probably won't die." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably. So, but like, how, like how far did that crack go? For example, do, do you remember on my particular bike? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty common on those. Those actually are way more damaged than they ever appear. You know, it's like the down tube in that area is thick you know, up to three millimeters. So, you know, you can, it takes a lot of damage before it really is like structurally damaged, but it radiates really far. I think yours went about three inches in all directions. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty yeah, big. And you couldn't see that. It looked, it looked like the size of a, 
you know, a quarter maybe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But it's kind of like yeah. the idea of with the ultrasound, I basically map out what I, you know, kind of the boundary edge of like where good carbon starts essentially. And we use that information to kind of like taper our repair out to make sure we're bringing it far enough out into the good parts of the bike. Gotcha. So what happens after you've determined how big the, the issue is basically? Oh, uh, at that point, it's just basically you kind of get a little aggressive with it we take it into our we have some specially designed uh, wet sanding booths and basically we just grind it all out but with, we do that as a wet process because it, there's no dust you know it kind of keep, keeps the shop real clean and it kind of is uh the point i like to do it that way or designed it that way is it's a continuously cleaning process you we're not like cross contaminating from bike to bike you know from different areas of different bikes because everything is you know, everything's dirty in a sense. And, you know, everything we're doing is adhesive based or glue based. So, you know, if there's any board, a bit of oil or grease on it, it would really kind of structurally negate the end result. So we kind of continuously sand out the whole area and we'll grind out almost all that damage. Everything's kind of specific how far we go, but you know, sometimes we go all the way till it's all gone. Are you literally like taking a, like a sort of fancy Dremel and just removing that entire section of rain. <laughs> describe what this looks like for me uh it's basically even though we're yeah, on a podcast yeah. it's not really the best medium <laughs> air, air, yeah. air, air tool uh right air tool yeah yeah we use a bunch of it kind of looked like a power die grinder where it's a big three inch uh, sanding disc uh though they're pretty aggressive and what they do some are different grits and they just kind of we just kind of go straight into it and kind of hog it out kind of I don't know we probably have every air tool ever at this point you know if we've been in business 12 years and we have every weird carbon fiber tool you could ever imagine gotcha so what happens we, we've, we've basically made a big hole right ma- yeah we made a big big hole in with fancy tools and what's after that yeah kind of that point you know part of making that big hole is really building out you know it's basically most all carbon repairs whether they're done on cars airplanes or bikes you basically got to taper out the repair so part of that machining process we kind of blend out that taper and there's a ton of as you know american society of uh testing materials or asme or uh some of the military aerospace stuff they have carbon repair guidelines on how far that taper ratio goes and cure profiles you know it's a pretty standardized practice outside of you know outside of the bike world it's a very normal job um, and the taper, a, a taper ratio out there listen, in listener land is basically the as you you know, the slope as you come down and into the actual damaged area. So envision like a, a, a slope that that's the specific you know knowledge required of our repair tech. He knows the specific slopes to taper that sanding process, and that's what a taper ratio is. So if, if there was, you know, there was three inches of damage on, on the down tube of my bike, how far out is that taper going? Like how, how big is the total space that you're taping? Oh, that's a, that would be a, uh, probably another, we probably might even double it to another three inches. And that's kind of roughly off the top of my head. And we kind of do that for a multitude of purposes. One, it really makes a really strong repair because we never want to see the same bike twice. Uh, it's kind of our motto. And really just helps with blending for paint and primer as well. And make, you know, it just kind of gives that long, elongated carbon layer so we can blend the paint. Yeah, kind of part of that is, 
building out our specific technique with ultrasound is, you know, let's say we were repairing a top tube and top tubes, you know, whether it's a metal bike or a carbon bike, they're incredibly thin in the center. So if we were doing a repair closer to the seat tube and put all this new material on, let's say we put on two millimeters and we created a huge stress riser right in the middle of the weakest part of the bike. And then, you know, we fixed one spot, but we just kind of created another problem in theory. So we try to also prevent that. <laughs> Gotcha. So after we've got a nice taper out, whatever, you know, almost double uh, the three inches that was needed to be removed from the bottom of my down tube, what's the next step? Uh, at that point, we kind of go through this kind of company secret of stabilization because kind of we really have created a giant hole and now there's nothing to push against. Uh, so we have one or kind of our one trade secret is how we stabilize that process and actually it's a structural stabilization but once it's stabilized we then just uh we have a carbon fabric plotter so we design all of our carbon layups in uh like an autocad tool run them through the plotter it cuts out all the exact fiber angles um, all the different layup schedules and we basically stack them all on and throw them in a vacuum bag and throw them through an oven cure cycle how do, how does how how are you figuring out uh, you, you know, fiber orientation and things like that. Are you trying to match the original frame, and and can you kind of see that when you're, you know, when you're making the hole, basically? Yeah, we definitely can. It's kind of when you're removing it, you can really take a look at it. You just shine a flashlight on it, you see which direction all the fibers go. The only thing we don't ever know is what the carbon grade is, like if it's a standard modulus or an intermediate modulus. So we do have to use our own best practices. And we've done a lot of our own internal testing. Like we have the ability to create all of our own tubing in-house and our own destructive testing. So we do our own repair testing kind of Every now and then we'll make a tube, repair a tube, destroy it, make a tube, you know, repair it, destroy it. And we always make sure our repairs are 10% stronger. And bikes, you know, at this point, I've been working engineering side of bikes for 12 years or more. There's really only so many ways to lay carbon on a bike. Uh, you know, there, there's kind of a, a convergence of solutions, I would say, uh, in a lot of the bike world right now. And there's not that many unique ways to really do it differently anymore. Gotcha. Is it important that you do match that up? I mean, so I, I'm thinking, you know, I've seen some some carbon repair jobs that were maybe less elegant <laughs> than some of the stuff that I've seen from, 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 you know, from major repair companies like yourselves. You know, more like I went out and bought some carbon fiber and wrapped it around this tube and then cured it and crossed my fingers. Right? <laughs> like, is is that... Is that actually going to be sort of a, a problem from a safety perspective, or is that just really ugly? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Both. <laughs> so don't do that. Yeah, you're me. I mean, the, there's a lot of issues with the home carbon repair. Um, part of it's process, because it's, you know, a lot of what I, I, I have this conversation all the time. People will call me and be like, hey, you know, I have... 30 years of fiberglass it's like okay you you probably probably have enough experience to do it but it's not a one-to-one -one direct comparison so part of it is procedural you really have to do things the right way to make it safe and another part of it is like the actual materials um you know i 
I heard this as rumor when I started working at Ruckus that Sean had to sign terrorism paperwork to bring in the quality of carbon that we did, but like that is still true, by the okay, way. Okay, so see, there you, go. you know, so it's the the quality of materials that people are going to be able to get just in the public market. They don't. They're not made, number one, they're not made for high-performance machines. And number two, they're not suitable for high-performance machines. So it's, you know, you don't know how old the resins are or where, like, any any idea of the quality of, of the carbon or the products to make them. So, you know, I'm sure there are people that, there are people out there that, that could do it, maybe. But the materials also just really, really limit. And without the perfection of those two, like, the synthesis of the, the individual doing it and the, the perfect equipment, then n- neither of them are going to work. All right, so I won't slather it in JB Weld. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> we do have a story about that, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to hear this story. I want to hear the JB Weld yeah, story. My, I mean, yeah. The, the, our friend, uh, a good friend of ours, was doing the, was, was it the Colorado Divide, Sean? No, the Great Divide. Great Divide Trail. Yeah, and, uh, well, you just take it away. You know the story a little bit better. Yeah, he was riding, you know, I think he may have been in Colorado at this point. Um, You know, he was doing the whole thing. He was riding carbon wheels and he ran over a piece of farm machinery, essentially. And uh, a huge spike essentially went straight through his carbon rim. And he was in the middle of nowhere. And he texted me and he's just like, oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> what do I do? You know, with like a photo of the thing sticking straight through the rim. You know, it's kind of like a help. I'm in the middle of nowhere. How do I MacGyver my way out of this? And I'm like, okay. Usually I don't really want to talk somebody through a, like a field repair, but, you know, we went for it. And yeah, basically talked him through it. Yeah, I got him to extract out the huge metal spike and got him to clean up the area. You know, I'm like, go to whatever hardware store you can find and like take a photo of what the epoxies they have there. <laughs> you know, it's like, how do, how do we get out of this situation so we could get to another town? And, you know, basically uh, he did end up, you know, JB Weld's pretty good. It's one of the more like, I would say, quality controlled epoxies out there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's great for most people. I, You know, we use something that's probably 10 times stronger, but... You know, for your general hardware store stuff, it's better than the two-part syringes they give you. So I got him to clean up the rim really well, get him to use a little sandpaper. I'm like, okay, now use a like an alcohol wipe and clean it up and try to get it. Like if you have a lighter, kind of use that to like kind of burn off any of the surface degree or degrease as well. And got him to basically do like a home or a field JB weld repair in the middle of like a 20 person town. (laughs) And he ended up riding it all the way out, you know, to all the way to the southern U.S. border. So it held. That's awesome. Yeah. I was I was about to ask for details of the JB weld repair, but I don't think we really want to tell people how to do that. (laughs) No, no, it's it's kind of a one one emergency situation. Like I'll get someone out of an emergency, but (laughs) if you're in the middle of the Great Divide and uh, you break a piece of carbon fiber, then you can call Sean and he might tell you how to do the JB weld repair. Otherwise, oh totally, that out of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We as uh, I think Dan always says, we'll always listen to everybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So returning to my my poor frame. So we've got, we had a hole. It's all nice and and tapered. Uh, you figured out what the new fiber sheets need to look like, how many of them, timing, all the sort of carbon fiber stuff. 
can you can you provide any insight into sort of how exactly you figure those things out? Is it literally just trying to match, or is it do you have sort of a a, a consistent recipe for a particular t- part of the bike? How does yeah. that work? Yeah, a lot of our bikes have, uh, yet again, having worked on so many, we have a just a general starting point or a generalized solution we work with. And that's, you know, for most bikes, it kind of depends like, oh, is it a mountain bike or is it a road bike? Is it a top tube or is it a down tube? Because almost all bikes nowadays have a really similar layup layup in them you know there's some exotic differences but not much so we're just kind of always laying up a primarily unidirectional fiber and every now and then we may throw in a woven layer either to kind of like give some cross hatching because those woven layers of carbon provide kind of a mechanical interlock and they will prevent any damage spreading you know if you will let's say you were to crash your down tube again you know all those woven layers are going to prevent that damage from going as far Gotcha. Which, which is kind of a cool addition. And we can blend in some other exotics every now and then if we need to. You know, exotics being Kevlar's um, or basalt, I guess, or flax. We we generally don't, but every now and then we see bikes sort of with them in it. So that the, the face you just made there tells me that there may be not really being used <laughs> we can save, as the marketing we, would suggest. We can save this for one of Sean's rants later. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Materials <laughs> materials in bikes is a great Sean rant. Yeah. Oh my God. It, it's a trigger word for me. <laughs> I think now is the time. I think I, I do. <laughs> Tell me about the flax in my bicycle. Uh there's not much. Or not. <laughs> you know, or like when people put Kevlar in something, it's like just a strand or two and you're like this doesn't do anything i I mean it's marketing it's all marketing and i that's fine i have no problem with marketing but just when they i don't know put all the dumb words on bikes or they put it the words ultra high modulus and you're like that no that doesn't exist like i mean it sort of exists but not for bikes or they or they put in like one one inch long by one you know, a tenth of a millimeter thick layer in it. And now they're like, oh, this bike is made with ultra high modulus carbon. And you're like, no, it's not. Oh, it just really improves the ride quality. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, there, no, there's none of it in there. I don't even know where it is, but. Is that because like that stuff costs so much more than any oh, yeah. bicycle, whatever? Like how, how much would it cost to make a bicycle out of ultra high modulus carbon fiber and would you want Ooh. to oh the answer is probably i don't know how much probably you know close to twenty thousand dollars and it would basically ride like a piece of glass like it would be amazing and super stiff but if you looked at it wrong it would sh- like literally shatter huh. like even as you do ho- that even as you hold the raw fiber you can barely bend it without it shattering huh it's it's a very I mean it's amazing what it can do but it's like a very specific purpose specific purpose it, and it's not a bicycle it, it's not a it's more of yeah it's an airframe tubing for uh, ballistics I would say gotcha <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs> so so basically the bike brands are just using it because it it adds extra adjectives ahead of the carbon fiber part yeah for a high yeah I think every hyphen and adjective uh, the price goes up another five hundred bucks. <laughs> all right returning to my bike so we figured out how to get how to, how to get all of the we figured out how to get all the all the carbon fiber onto the bike what's the what's the next step what's it, what comes after that bit yeah we you know at that point we need to pressurize it and you know cure it we use all pre-preg where the epoxy's already in the carbon um at this point so we've typically you know if it's a more complex shape like your down tube is it doesn't 
uh, or it lends itself well to a vacuum bag. And that allows us, we basically create a bag around it on your frame itself and pull all the air out of it. And what that does, that puts a vacuum on your part and all the pressure of the atmosphere pushes down on it. And that's about 14 PSI as a pressure, but then you kind of multiply that over the square area of it. And you're like, oh, the actual force goes up to 500 pounds or a thousand pounds. It gets big quick, which is pretty cool. And then we run it for a long oven cycle and that heats it and cures all the epoxy and cross links all the polymers. Gotcha. And then it comes out looking, I would assume kind of rough. Do you have to do anything to it at that point? Can, could could you at this point? I should say, could you just ship that that frame out to somebody? Is that like? Oh yeah. Could that be done? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Structurally, okay. for yeah, sure, it not, looks I mean, it looks great. I mean, even I would say aesthetically, we have. I've been at Ruckus for about three and a half years now, um, and in those three and a half years, we've made tremendous strides of how much better the bikes look immediately as they come out the oven is the repair like raised up or is it sort of designed to be in line with the rest of the frame it's you know it's basically designed to be relatively in line we overbuild all our repairs by about 10 percent um structural strength essentially and we do that we control that with our own internal testing so we kind of know how much we take out versus how much we put back in aka we're going to put back in an extra ply or two and yeah, it's we also kind of as Dan said, we're building since all we do is service labor. I'm very conscious about having people spend time on anything, um, basically any non value added work. So we try to continuously make our repairs as perfect as possible. And that's a never reachable goal, essentially. But we're trying to make sure we're minimizing all the prep work before final paint. And our, our problem is in paint. Uh, we use all super thin water-based paints just because they're environmentally friendly. They're easier for us to get, and we can mix and match any color. But it's basically the equivalent of rubbing like a dye on your bike. Like it's worthlessly thin. Um, so we got to make our repairs as flawless as possible before we go to that step. You know, most traditional bikes use a relatively thick paint system. You know, they're paint, uh, spraying on a millimeter of primer sometimes and then they can wet sand it but since ours is water-based we can't touch it we have to spray perfect on yeah. top on top of all that work and then you know our clear coat is a solvent-based system but you know there's not a lot to work with and yet again since all we're doing is repair and trying to make it cost effective you know it can't take time essentially so we try to make everything be minimal on the amount of time but maximum quality gotcha I want to ask you some sort of broader questions about just carbon repair generally, because I think at this point we've, we've stepped through the steps and we're, we are now my new, my mountain bike frame is, is like new, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Happy days. Happy days are here again. I'm going to probably break it sometime this year, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my fault. Not the bike's fault. Uh, so some sort of broader questions about, about carbon repair generally. I, I think some of our audience, but probably not all of it is going to be aware that you know, carbon can be repaired. Uh, and in fact, it's actually a lot easier to repair than most metal bikes, even though most of us, I think, think of metal bikes as sort of like the forever bike. Speak to me like I'm a kindergartner. Why is that? What What is it about carbon fiber that makes it repairable, basically? Dan, you want to hit that? The benefit of carbon fiber repair versus a steel let's just say steel uh, as as a comparison is the locality of a repair 
you know, you can have, we can detect and find a repair in a carbon fiber laminate that would be, you know, half an inch smaller. So our repair could be at most, you know, for a really small repair, two inches in diameter. Um, you know, if you have a dent in a steel top tube that's in the middle of the tube, um, that's not going to be a localized repair. I'm, you know, you'll have to cut out both ends, put it, you know, remiter, put everything back together. And, you know, that can be done as well. But the locality is what makes it easy um, or easier um, in a sense. And that's a function of the material itself, right? Because you can, it's it's fibers and resin. And so you can sort of slice and dice and just repair particular sections right yeah exactly yeah it can kind of take what's in there and blend in more or blend in less and as long as we're not kind of messing with uh i always say we don't want to change the design intent of the original bike engineers or manufacturing so we try to always blend in that design as best as we can all right another question what is the most common failure i should say failure break uh, that you guys deal with what what is what's the number one crack location <laughs> seat seat stays <laughs> road seat stays it's seat yeah stays. It's seat stays it's not top tubes no seat stays beats it by a little bit okay they're close but, but they're pretty close. close they're close and kind of the reason why is you know i look at it from two two different viewpoints one of them they're the thinnest tubes on the bike um, just structurally, you know, they're both like maybe a millimeter in carbon material. Um, and then the other way I kind of look at it is when somebody crashes, they're the most exposed tubes as well. You know, like chain stays and down tubes are kind of protected by, um, the rider's feet or the crank arms or the pedals and the top tube or the front end of the bike is kind of protected from the handlebars and the seat tube is kind of protected from the um, saddle, but when you fall, you know, that top tube slams right into the ground or it can, and then typically the rider will fall onto the seat stays themselves. Ah, so the seat stays get broken by the actual person. Yeah. Every, every, every a lot of derailers <laughs> fall off, I would say. Um, yeah. and, uh, the derailer gets sucked into everything and goes straight through a seat stay pretty often as well. Gotcha. And you must get a lot of like handlebars spinning around, whacking into top tubes as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh yeah. Quite a lot of it. Done that one. I've done that one a couple times myself. Oh yeah. I <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty common for everybody at this point. Do are, are there particular fixes that you find yourself doing to particular bikes over and over again? And I, you don't need to throw anyone under the bus here. You don't need to say, "Oh yeah, all all of brand X breaks in this one place." But if the, is there an example of that does that is that sort of thing happen yeah and i would say your your bike is actually a perfect example of that uh in the last couple years mountain bikes have you know as you know we have such an interesting view on bikes you know we're kind of down the line and, and we're not part of the design process but we see failures from every brand ever made over time so you know i think where your bike's a great example and it's nothing to do with trek at all we see this across every single mountain bike out there right now and you know since people have gone to one by sit uh kind of front chain ring systems and they're running a small front chain ring you know for one that exposes your down tube more where traditionally you may have had a double you may have had a bigger chain ring on there and that would that actually protects your down tube more but now with a small 32th or 32 
chain ring, your down tube's now more exposed than it's ever been. And then just the way people are trying to adapt uh, mountain bike GI or full suspension designs and all the linkages designs, they've kind of been scooping that down tube further forward and making more room in the main triangle, whether that's for you know bike packing bags or water bottles or bigger shocks or who knows what. Um, that further puts the down tube in, you know, harm's way essentially. And they're just down tubes are on mountain bikes are exposed. Like they're just completely exposed and we see them slammed into rocks, slammed into logs. You know, it's kind of the same idea. You know, we used to run bash guards on mountain bikes because like, oh, that's how I climb over this log. I dig my chain, I dig my big chain ring into it and crawl over it. But now, you know, with a one by setup, it doesn't, you know, people are still riding like they have a double on, but they're not. Right, with a 32th front ring that's not really going to protect very much. I mean, should should mountain bike brands, should, should they be putting better protection on down tubes, in I, your opinion? Yeah, I think so. You know, everybody kind of puts on a rubber pad, and that rubber pad is relatively, you know, it's going to protect against, like, rock chips. But, I mean, at some point on some ride, you're going to go straight into a rock or straight into a log or straight into something. Um, and a little rubber pad it really isn't going to do the trick and we've experimented with having different like crushable materials or crush core materials and that's i don't know it's kind of an interesting product to design around but it's hard to adapt that to you know the 300 different mountain bike designs out there like for a small company like us to really do that and the other big thing we're seeing a lot damage wise on that same single chain ring scenario is you know everybody wants to run a bigger tire on their bike you know, let's call it their gravel bike. They want to run a bigger tire. There's a dropped chain stay, and now they're running the biggest chain ring they can. And boy, chains are just chewing up inner chain stays. Huh? That's surprising. That like 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 chain suck or just or just I guess it doesn't even have to suck very far if the chain stays dropped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so close. And like, yeah, just yeah, people drop a chain for whatever reason, and it just goes straight into these chain stays. And you know, there's not that much room in there anymore. If you're running, let's say, a 34 or a 36 tooth, uh, right. or even even 40 on some of these gravel bikes, and now you know you have maybe have two millimeters of clearance, and it's just kind of ride that down some gnarly road, and oh, your chain goes straight through those chain stays. Is there anything you guys can't fix? And I mean, that's sort of generally like carbon repair as a, as an industry is there something on a bike that is just too small too complicated stuff that you stuff that you just won't touch i think it's it's a little bit of stuff that i mean i guess the answer is like we can mostly fix everything there are a lot of things we choose not to repair because we don't deem it as viable uh monetarily or safety wise we can essentially make all and repair almost anything that said, the things we don't touch are forks. Uh, we only ultrasound scan forks. We just cost of a new fork versus our repair isn't isn't very good. And uh, fork repair, we just don't see it as a good or safe idea. Um, so we don't do those. We don't repair wheels for a variety of reasons. Uh, balance is usually thrown off when you do a wheel repair. Is you only build up one area. Um, the resin matching between systems is going to be absolutely impossible. So if you have a rim brake, it's very likely going to introduce brake pulsing because of a temperature differential. And uh, another reason we don't do rims, this is more clincher, um, 
uh, if it's near the brake track, the maintaining the flatness of that area is also next to impossible. Um, so there's going to be likely pulsing there as well. Um, so, you know, for a variety of those reasons, we don't touch wheels, um, component. We do disc wheels or disc, disc rims. Not so much. The balance issue is still kind of, it's a thing. Yeah. You know, or any, or anything to do with like, you know, the bead or the hook of the rim. If there's anything around there, we won't touch it. You know, we'll work on full like time trial disc wheels or track disc wheels when essentially you're working with a whole pizza Pizza shape yeah (laughs) a whole pizza size repair that we can put enough material in and it you know it's more aerodynamically important to you know keep the wheel good but but those are basically those things are because why would you why would you pay to repair a stem when you could go buy a new one for 50 bucks like that yeah 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 exactly and and also i mean yeah it's that's it that's it (laughs) all right so i want i want to wrap up today with some some helpful advice to our listeners out there. So what's a good way to, to inspect your bike? Like what, what, when, when you guys are just going through a bike with no, no ultrasound, none of the fancy technology. Yeah. Just looking at it, tapping it, whatever. How, how can people check their bikes? Yeah. The best way I tell people to do it is start by cleaning their bike. Um, you know, you can't see anything if there's dirt or grease or it's amazing how even like, a cat hair or something on it or dog hair will look like a crack under certain lights and you're like oh no and then you wipe it off and you're like oh thank god why do i have this giant white dog <laughs> um so, so start by cleaning people's you know i always say start by cleaning your bike and you know just soapy water and a sponge is kind of really the best way because then you're not really wrecking your clear coat you know just kind of rinsing it off and you know kind of getting up into your bike i like to take we have these little inspection flashlights but they're really just a flashlight um and you know kind of just hold it at like maybe a 45 degree angle in your hand and as you just kind of look over your bike and just look for anything i would say weird and that sounds really general but you know basically you're looking for anything that's not like the surrounding area so if you're looking at a piece of painted yellow area if you see something that catches the light a little different well that's something weird what do you do if you see something weird? So, so if I've got a weirdness on my bike, but it's not sort of obviously a crack or obviously a soft spot or something like that, you know, I've heard of people recommending like tapping it with a quarter or something like that, like listening for something different. What else can people do to, I mean, you know, cause it is a, it's a pain in the butt to take all the stuff off your bike, ship you guys a frame, oh, yeah. cost money, all these things. So is there a way to sort of self-diagnose some basic some basic carbon issues. The, the tap test is a good idea and can be very effective. Um, that's a whole nother can of worms that uh, the tap test itself. Um, so it's a good way to start, um, but it's by no means definitive and it is easy to get false readings um, to summarize that up. But yeah, Kaylee, it's, it's, I mean, it's a good place to start if you tap on it and something sounds obviously weird. It's like, okay, I should look at that. A lot of these bikes, they're kind of overbuilt in certain places, right? Oh, uh, definitely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about three millimeter th- thick down tubes, stuff like that. Right. The, the fact that I rode the bike that you guys fixed for months without dying. And in fact, without any obvious like massive spread, uh, if people have a very tiny 
And I realize we're getting in some some sketchy legal area here. Uh, <laughs> if, if people have like a, a a tiny soft spot or a tiny crack, it, it, are there certain places on the bike in particular where where you might just say, "Yeah, keep an eye on it, draw some lines." If it turns into something like a real crack or it's expanding at all, definitely let us know immediately. But you know, this isn't pro- probably going to kill you. Is that something you could ever actually do? Hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, like the seat tube is kind of my most as one of the few tubes I think is kind of pointlessly redundant. Like I think all bikes could be used without seat tubes for the most part, but it's hard to say. It's really so case by case specific to every frame and then rider style. Like we get a lot of mountain bike guys nowadays that are like, "Oh, I, uh, you know, I'm not jumping very high." And you're like, "Well, what's very high to you?" And he's like, "Oh, only 6 feet." And I'm like, "Okay, that's that's very, <laughs> you know, it's so subjective. Like, I don't leave the ground on my mountain bike. So anything <laughs> off the ground is significant." It's it's a it's a tough one. It's you know, it's so case by case and what we're kind of doing right now is working on furthering our knowledge of damage spread and extent. You know, kind of with you know, I'm creating all these test specimens and some of the abandoned bikes that we have, and I'm putting uh, essentially flaws into them, either through a drill, you know, a very specific drill size, like of a 64th, and then running some cycles or tests on it to see how those cracks spread over time. Because I don't want to over-characterize essentially damage as well and be like, oh, you know, like, is should this should I call this repairable or not? Or when should I repair something at what size that that information just isn't out there. And we're trying to grow that ourselves. And I'm right now I'm trying to work with the American Society of Non-Destructive Testing and working in their leadership program to kind of hopefully try to bring some of these technologies and standardizations into the bike world just because they don't exist at this time. What I always say to people about this, Kaylee, and I mean, I've broken my bike, so I know the horrible feeling of, oh, shit, <laughs> like, this sucks. <laughs> so I can empathize on that. And my point, when I talk to customers, my point on the whole thing is it's better to take care of it now because it's going to be less expensive. And mm. that is just an empirical fact the smaller the damage the easier and less expensive it is going to be for us to do so you know if you keep riding it like let's say you have the small seat stay damage and you keep riding it and your stay breaks in two places instead of just the one as a result of you continually using it well now you've doubled your repair cost you know so it's again i (laughs) When you're out on a beautiful day and it's 65 in April in Oregon and you break your bike, it really sucks. Um, so I, that's what I always tell people. It's better to take care of it now uh, for cost and for also safety. You don't know what's going to happen when it breaks or, you know, a ship floats until it sinks. So, <laughs> you know, anything, yeah. anything can happen. So that's what I tell people on that. Words of wisdom right there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's Dan's favorite quote, by the way. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Super informative. And, wow, I'm just super excited to get my, my mountain bike back. It's, yeah. uh, it's coming into springtime here. We're going to go get some shred on. <laughs> yeah, thanks. thanks for having us. All right, so... I guess lesson 
to be learned from the conversation that you had with Ruckus and I guess the experience of getting your bike fixed by those guys in general. Carbon fiber, I mean, yes, they have, it has this reputation of being, you know, kind of fragile and disposable and whatnot, but it's, it's not disposable. I mean, it can be repaired. And if you go by what the guys at Ruckus are saying, in a lot of ways, it's actually more repairable than a metal frame. I think in, in almost every way, it's more repairable than a metal frame. I mean, yeah, like you can take a tube out of a steel frame and put a new tube in, but you have to find somebody to do that for you. You probably want to get the whole thing repainted again. You know, for 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 I think a lot of the the breaks that happen on bike frames, particularly on carbon bike frames, they're pretty small. They're you know a lot of the cost associated with this comes in sort of the finishing and the repainting and things like that. Like if you don't care if there's a little patch of carbon fiber on your seat stay, then yeah, the repair can be relatively, relatively cheap. Uh, and, and you can get it done in all sorts of different places. Ruckus has, can do it. There's, 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 yeah, I mean, there's, there's a dozen or more different composite fixing places out there. Now, I mean, according to, to, to Ruckus, and I would presume like, you know, a lot of other good carbon composite repair facilities will make the same claim. But, you know, they're basically making the assertion that or they're basically making the claim that this frame that has been repaired is not only as good as new, but could arguably be actually better than it was when it came out of the factory. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think any of the any of the sort of big carbon repair places are are are. are are going to say the same thing basically because they're they're better safe than sorry right they, they tend to add a little bit more material than maybe was was used to begin with not a ton more but a little bit of extra uh you know because they don't want they don't want to they don't want to create issues down the line with their repair obviously uh yeah so so you know those guys have basically said listen your bike is going to be just as good as new uh if not stronger you know they're going to stick the pad back on the on the bottom there Try not to run it into any more rocks, but if you do, we'll fix it again. <laughs> I mean, th this is Colorado. The rocks are pretty hard to avoid. They're pretty hard to avoid, and they just jump out at you. That's what happened last time. Yeah, the trail gnomes. Just, the trail gnomes just pick them up and throw them I at know, you. I know it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, Dave, would you have any qualms about riding a repaired carbon frame? I mean, I I, I know that in you know these companies and, and and by all accounts, I mean, it does seem like a properly repaired carbon frame is essentially as good as new, if not potentially better. But there is still like, you know, because there's all this mystique and just kind of uncertainty that people have about carbon fiber, about how it's made and, you know, sort of the structure of it and all that sort of thing, like all these layers that you can't see. I mean, do you think there is still going to be an issue in people's minds about riding a frame that is repaired? Or I mean, I mean, is that something that people just have to get over over time? Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't it shouldn't be a factor. I mean, the the frame, as as Kaylee said, I mean, by the time these the truly professional outlets that are doing this repair work, by the time they're done, the frame is as good, if not better, than new. You know, and and the best guys, are, you know, they're doing they're doing ultrasound checks on these frames to make sure that their work is free of voids and that the rest of the frame is safe. Uh, and that's something that actually doesn't happen in the factory. So in theory, you've probably got more confidence after the repairs done than you did before the crash. Yeah, the ultrasound testing thing or the ultrasound scanning thing is, is is a super important part of this, right? Because as you heard in that interview, you know, the actual sort of visual damage, visible damage on my bike was maybe the size of like a quarter or so. And again, this was like from a massive impact. 
but the actual damage I could see was about the size of a quarter. It wasn't soft. It wasn't any any of the things that you sort of normally look for. But the the damage underneath, which when, once they scanned it, was up to I think you said three inches around or something like that. So probably like two or three, yeah, so like two or three times, like eight centimeters in any direction, basically. Yeah, basically. So like you know, instead of the size of a quarter, like almost the size of a fist, right on on the on my down tube. So if you don't do the ultrasound scanning you can't tell how far those cracks go you know you can't tell if for example two rocks kicked up and there was a big one that i noticed and then there was a smaller one six inches up that they you know that i wouldn't have noticed all that sort of stuff so i I agree that the ultrasound stuff is super important for this particular uh type of repair unfortunately it's also not common or um required so it's you know not everyone doing carbon repair is doing ultrasound testing and that's not to say their work's not safe or that their work's not professional but uh but yeah i mean unfortunately there are there are some that offer this service and and then others sort of i guess will will sand back the material and do a visual inspection you know um and and whether that works or not i mean the people that do the ultrasound say their way's better it's it's you know it's hard to say dave you're actually aren't you going to use ultrasound to check out a bike sometime soon are we going to talk about that project <laughs> uh we we, we give a little teaser a tease little teaser yeah uh we'll just say i'm uh I'm, i've been shopping on alibaba lately D- dave dave has been doing a little bargain hunting and we are going to discover if uh if dave is under threat of imminent doom or if he is good to go we're going to find mm. out soon enough but speaking of ultrasound Listening to this interview a couple days ago, it prompted me. It kind of kind of got me thinking about, you know, it, I think it's great that carbon frames can be repaired and that they can be repaired well. Um, but it also got me thinking, you know, like this, this rock that you kicked up and hit your down to. I mean, this is not an uncommon occurrence. And, you know, the the guys at Ruckus were t- going through kind of the, the list of common frame failures that, that they see. And, you know, paper thin top tubes and really thin seat stays, that kind of thing. And again, it got me. It got me thinking. You know, our you know, we, we're always you know as consumers, we always want more for less. We want kind of more performance, less money, less weight, more strength, so on and so forth. But you know, the harsh reality is there is give and take in all this stuff. So you know, as we kind of herald the you know the advent of you know seven hundred gram carbon road frames and that kind of thing, you know, the question went through my mind of you know. Are these things too light? Like, are we pushing things too far? And uh, the first person to come to mind to ask that question, uh, I, I asked Raoul Lucher from Lucher Tech, uh, Lucher Technic in in uh, in Melbourne, Australia, who's not that far away from you, Dave. Um, and you know, he has been inspecting uh, and repairing carbon frames for, I mean, longer than pretty much anyone that I can think of personally. I mean, I guess say for you know really early guys like, you know, Craig Calfee and stuff like that. But he'd been doing this for a long time and he comes from an aerospace background, uh, has done a ton of ultrasound work. So I called him up to ask his thoughts on whether or not frames are too light. And his answer was pretty much what I expected. So let's take a listen to that. I sent you via email a little bit already about kind of what this episode was going to be like. And <clears throat> I, I can't remember if I mentioned specifically, but the carbon repair, the carbon repair place that Kaylee was talking about in, in his interview uh, was uh, was Sean at Ruckus Composites. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, I remember when they had just barely started and now they're seemingly a pretty good sized operation. Um, and Kelly went into a lot of pretty detailed ins and outs with all that. But, um, I mean, a lot of what they talked about was sort of more about the process of what's involved with repairing a carbon frame and how to evaluate damage. And, you know, they kind of talked a little bit about kind of non-destructive testing and ultrasound and stuff like that. Um, but I kind of want to back up a little bit and, you know, just based on, you know, it seems safe to say that you have probably inspected and or repaired more carbon, I guess, road frames, certainly in particular, than a lot of other people in the world, I think, um, you know, probably ruckus included, because you've been doing this for quite a long time now. But what I wanted to ask you is, you know, you don't have to name names or, you know, specific makes or models or whatnot. But what I'm wondering is, from your perspective, are bikes getting too light? Or, you know, are we focusing too much on performance and not enough on whether or not these things will actually hold up in real world use? Yeah, and that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, the short answer is yes. Um, that unfortunately, weight has been uh, an overemphasized uh, performance metric. So, you know, if you have two identical, if you have two identical looking bikes, the one that's lighter will be perceived to be the higher performance bike. Um, now, if you're if you're a, a, a proper bike rider, you'll know that that's not that's not true at all. It's there's far more factors involved to what make a bicycle um, ride nicely and handle well, and you know all these sorts of factors. So it's it's you know it's 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 not just it's not just the weight of the bike which is important. So. Um, Yes, so there's been, in my in my opinion, a bit of a a race to the bottom um, by the the brands um, marketing departments uh, primarily to just go, well, you know, come on, we're going to have it lighter, we're going to need a lighter bike. So you know, and then I mean, if you're if you're racing, you know, UCI um, sort of sanctioned events, well, the bike has to be six point eight kilo anyway, and so. Why would you build a six kilo bike and then add eight hundred grams of dead mass to it to bring it up to weight? Like you'd be much better off having that that uh, mass as structural material to improve durability. So, um, and I mean, this is something I went through um, oh, a long time ago. Now, so two thousand and eight when I when I designed the Mulvan Star Oppie carbon bikes uh, here in Australia. And, you know, we've, the, the discussions, you know, came down to weight as, as they always do um, at, at, you know, at bicycle company meetings. And, um, and I said, well, for the sake of another 100 grams of material, put in the right place, you can increase the durability of the bike significantly. And and so that's that's what we ended up doing. And so the frame it's look it came in a, at a one you know one kilo frame. Um, and 
you know, it was 12 years ago. That was that was still a, a light enough frame. Yeah, there were frames sort of around the the 900 grams, even 850, sort of there uh, thereabouts. Um, but this this frame then was uh, ridden domestically by the pro team, the Genesis pro team, and they're travelling all over the country and they they didn't have any failures on these bikes and um the bikes were still 6.8 kilo um you know by by selecting um you know careful selection of components you you make the bike at at the correct weight and still not compromise any of that so um definitely you know there in my in my opinion there's been a, a bit of a race to the bottom on you know, on how light these things um, have become when there's, you know, often no real advantage for that and there are a number of disadvantages, you know. And, yeah, so people talk about, oh, the carbon bikes don't have the durability of a steel bike. And it's just like, yeah, well, a steel bike weighs one, like the frame alone weighs one and a half kilos and the fork weighs 750 grams or something like that. And so, or more even. That's right, and 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 so, you know, if you built a carbon frame, you know, approaching those sorts of weights, you could you could you could drive a bulldozer over the thing, and it would be indestructible, you know. And so, I mean, you see some of the track frames, like that the sprinters, the track sprinters use, um, and they're heavy. Like some of those BT frames, are, they're over two kilos. Um, and they're durable, like the, you know those got the the guys, the sprinters are putting out you know twenty five hundred plus watts, five hundred newton meters of torque, and the you know in the Kieran's they're crashing, and they can just pick the bikes up and go and ride them again, and you now so those bikes are durable. So you know mass and durability are, are are interrelated because obviously the more material you've got, the the more strength um, and redundancy you have. So with road frames now, top-end road frames I'm talking about, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of these carbon road frames are coming in at, you know, 700-odd grams without paint, that sort of thing. Um, mm. You know, would, would you say, I mean, given given the current limitations in manufacturing processes and, you know, certain you know known expectations for some manufacturing variability, that kind of thing, I mean, in, I guess in your opinion, what do you think is a kind of a good ballpark weight for a top end frame to be both, you know, kind of really high performing and still yet really durable, something that'll hold up to real world abuse? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, it, you know, there, there are a number of variables, obviously, in, 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 in uh, the production processes and the material selections and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, uh, as I said before, if, if if you put 100 grams of extra material into um, into certain areas of the bike, you significantly improve the um, the durability. So, you know, 100 grams isn't much in in the scheme of things. I mean, you could argue as a as a percentage, it's it's sort of what almost 15 percent. Um, of a 700, you know, 600, 700 gram frame. So, um, but in the whole scheme of things, it's like how many of us really um, are 
right on our optimum weight for performance anyway. You know, it's like, um, you know, we all could lose more than 100 grams you know, ourselves um, to certainly compensate on that. So it just comes down to the, the metric on on how um, how bikes performance is perceived relative to the weight. And, you know, you, you, the actual performance is the the bike and rider package. It's not just the bike on its own. The bike on its own can't do anything. You, you need a rider on the bike. And so it's it's the complete system. Um, and then even that is, is, is debatable as well in terms of how much a performance difference there is with uh, a lighter bike so it, it really is um you know a lot of a lot of marketing spin has been has been put on on this just because it's a really easy metric you know you any bike shop can have a set of scales and, and just go well this one's the light one so the, this one's more is is the high performance bike when um that's as I said that's not uh not necessarily correct Got it. Well, fair enough, Ral. I mean, it sounds like sounds like 100 grams well spent, I think. Yeah, well, that's right. And, I mean, you look at, like, particularly in the mountain bike scene and, and where, if anything, weight would make more of a difference um, because you're, you're changing direction um, far more frequently. You're, you know, you're changing elevation um you know, like larger changes in elevation typically. Um, but, you know, where the mass comes into, in, into, into, into effect from a physics point of view is acceleration. So, you know, when you're doing, when you're co- constantly accelerating, decelerating, that's where mass has a bigger effect. Um, on a, like a, if you look at a road time trial, for instance, it makes, it makes zero difference what the weight of the bike is. You, you're going at a consistent speed. You're not you're not accelerating. Um, you're you're going down a flat road. You know, there's been there's been um, um, you know research done showing that actually on a time trial bike, you know, having heavier components is is beneficial because it it um, it reduces. The, the decelerations and keeps your speed more constant and these sorts of things. But, you know, with, with mountain biking, so, you know, from a physics point of view, the weight should be of higher importance, but the mountain bikers don't really talk about it that much because they just want their bike to work and be reliable. And so, because they know they're going to have some crashes and the bike just needs to work. And, you, you know, if you're in a, um, a remote trail, it's not much fun having to walk all those Ks or miles back out of uh, back to the, to the trailhead. So, um, so in the mountain biking scene, the marketing hasn't taken over that sort of weight weenieism, um, but yet on the road it has. So it's just sort of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange sort of situation. And and you know the brands in mountain biking that are perceived to have the higher durability and reliability. Their frames are also heavier. <laughs> it's just like, well, surprise, surprise. You know, yeah. who would have thought that? <clears throat> so, you know, it, 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 there's. If you just step back and look at things logically, um, and what's what's important and what isn't, um, the answers become very clear very quickly. 
Oh, well, <clears throat> I always used to say that, you know, light bikes can still always seem heavy when you have to carry them out. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yep. Well, cool. Ralph, thank you very much for your time, as always. Uh, again, I mean, I feel like I tap your expertise very regularly, so I very much appreciate your time. And I dare say this is probably not going to be the last time I contact you, yeah. so I'm not going to wear out my welcome. Thanks again, Ralph. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. Thank you. According to Ralph, I mean, he's basically saying, added 100 grams to every frame it's way way more durable and impact resistant than they are they all basically be at the cutting edge of performance we never really talk about the idea these things aren't really as durable as maybe they could be or should be so the question then would be if someone marketed you know if companies marketed frames not on the merits of their you know low weight and high stiffness and stuff like that if they if they marketed them instead on their durability and kind of played up the fact that they're actually heavier. Is that something that you think people would pay for? Oh, I don't know. Yes. In in the mountain bike world, I think it's it's starting to happen. I mean, there's a few there's a few brands local to you guys, I believe, that are actually using this as a marketing tactic. It's a different story on the road though, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think it, part of that has to maybe do with, you know, kind of the how, how frequently stuff like this happens, but you know, at least certainly in here, like this this company that you were talking about, Dave, and it's, I, mm-hmm. I think you're referring to Gorilla Gravity. Um, I mean, their carbon frames are not light. You know, I, I tested one at the Pink Bike Field Test last fall, and great bike, not light. And we all basically said the same thing. But, you know, they're claiming some pretty massive durability and impact uh, resistance, basically. And, and there is a lot to be said for that. I mean, a lot of those people in that crowd are willing to lug around a few hundred extra grams if they have confidence that the thing is not going to splinter when a rock hits it. Now, it's interesting, though, like, you know, Kaylee, that you say that, you know, a lot of people maybe wouldn't do that. I mean, I think on the road that probably is the case. But let me ask you this. I mean, if you look at the automotive world, for example, you know, um, you know, Kaylee, I know you have a Toyota Tacoma. Those things are are not inexpensive, especially compared to, you know, like a, the equivalent Ford or Chevy or stuff, something like that. But, you know, you and your wife knowingly paid extra for a truck that on the surface, on paper, maybe isn't actually as good as some of the other stuff that you could have gotten. But, you know, people pay extra for Toyotas and Hondas and that sort of thing all the time because they have this proven reputation for reliability and durability. So why don't we have that in bikes? Yeah, I mean the, the the truck analogy is somewhat apt. I think that's closer to like a, it's closer to sort of a maybe a mountain bike analogy. And plus the fact that I plan on keeping that truck for like fifteen twenty years, <laughs> which which makes it slightly different from most bicycles. Yeah, I think you could you could make an argument to that effect on the mountain bike side. I still don't think it would work with most people. I think most people, frankly, are not discerning enough buyers to be able to parse whether that's actually important to them when they've been told for years and years and years and years that weight is part of the performance equation and so they're going to get the light one every single time right and i should say that you know like even brands that don't advertise that i mean my bike the, the trek like the down tube on that thing is super thick and they mentioned the, the 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 ruckus composites guys mention this like you know at some point there's unless you're just going to going to apply like 50 extra layers 
there's nothing you can do to prevent a down tube from cracking if you chuck a rock at it at nearly 40 kilometers an hour, right? Right. A big cantaloupe, a big cantaloupe-sized thing of granite is a lot of weight and a lot of energy. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, again, this is even through the pad, like the rubber pad that's in the bottom of the down tube. So yeah, I think that you could you could potentially to a certain section of the market you could use that that as marketing. You could use durability as marketing. I think for the majority He's- of buyers frankly they just that that's not the top of the list and i think you'd really struggle i would actually say that there is a, a reasonable size market already that are focused on this element and they're the ones buying the high-end steel titanium and titanium bikes i mean there's that's one of the key reasons to buy like a, a steel bike is just the fact that you kind of don't have to worry about knocking it around like it can take a bit of a knock and if you do hit it hard enough that you dent it at least then you have a dent that you can safely watch um and make sure that it's not you know it's not growing whereas carbon fiber is like this this mysterious material to everyone that like you know they think if you if you drop it 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 has to be replaced which of course is not the case always but it's um yeah i feel like there probably is a, a strong market out there that are obsessed with this element and they're just completely overlooking carbon bikes in general well here's the thing that i find kind of interesting though because you know, Kaylee, you say that you, you're not sure that that sort of thing would go over well in that market. Now, I would say that, you know, bike media people, you know, people who are involved in the tech side of things in particular, and we, you know, kind of have the inside line on everything, like kind of like, you know, what works, what doesn't work, you know, kind of, you know, what is as good as they're claiming it is, so on and so forth. Now, we've been kind of going through uh, slowly over the last few months, sort of thing. We've been we've been you know kind of featuring staff bikes in our bikes of the bunch features, and one thing I've noticed in those, and I've also noticed this just sort of in bike industry in general, is and and this may be part of the. I mean, I, I will say, I mean, as as a member of tech bike media people, that you know I I will raise my hand up and take some ownership in the fact that I you know always talk up the performance of carbon fiber bikes, but. When it comes to bikes that we own ourselves, most most of them are metal. I mean, Kaylee, your road bike is a titanium custom mosaic. I mean, Dave, your your bike that we featured not too long ago is a Cannondale CAD 12, you know, welded aluminum. You know, Ian's yeah, bike, and he, yeah. I mean, well, mine is a hybrid. I have a I have a custom seven that's that's titanium and carbon. Like mountain bike, you mean? Um, not a hybrid. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, but the funny, then, the funny part here is we've all got carbon fiber mountain bikes, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly, and like yeah. I actually have. I mean, you know, I, I talk with Matt Phillips from Bicycling quite a bit. I mean, he and I have, have known each other for quite a while, and we were having this conversation not too long ago about how, you know, on the one hand, mountain bikes, you know, the geometry has been changing so quickly, the suspension's been changing so quickly. Like, there's almost no such thing as a quote unquote forever mountain bike if you are really riding mountain bikes a lot, just because you know you want to be you know, you, you want to have the good suspension, you want to have the good geometry and that sort of thing. And because everything is changing all the time, there is nothing, at least right now anyway, there's no such thing as, some, as you know, the, the forever frame. It just, it's just not out there unless you're, unless you're getting a hardtail with geometry that you are just going to commit yourself to forever and ever. On the road, however, things are more stable and things haven't really changed very much. And you know, that geometry has more or less been dialed for decades, essentially, at this point. 
So it's like, you know, you're more comfortable buying something and spending a lot of money on it that you're going to hold on to for, for a really long time. And in that case, it seems like if you really want something to last a really long time, we're all going with metal bikes. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is that, you know, when we, we the bikes that we test are not metal bikes. So there's like there's carbon bikes to sort of like come through, you know, the garage or the in my case, a closet. Uh you know, that come through that we test and then they go away and then a new one comes in and it goes away and a new one comes in and it goes away. And like I, I, I have, there's always a carbon bike around if I really want to go ride the 14 pound wonder machine and go as fast as I possibly can. And I have this other bike that's sort of a totally different, a totally different use case. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely true that like there are more metal bikes than carbon bikes owned by bike industry people, I think. So I guess is the moral of the story, do as we say, not as we do? We're hypocrites. <laughs> We're just hypocrites. I think, uh, I think the, moral, the moral of the story is, you know, buy, buy whatever bike makes you happy. And if it's a carbon bike and you broke it, it's fixable. And hopefully happy one days. day we all stop obsessing about the weight figure and we can have more durable bikes. I will agree to that. And actually, uh, just to, to put a footnote on all this, Dave, you did do, you know, I, I guess you and I both did a weight-focused mm. podcast on this uh, on, on this subject yeah, not too long a ago. Of episodes ago. And the conclusion yeah. there was weight does not matter as much as we all think it does or it used to think it does. So, yeah, let's let's all just Correct. kind of make bikes heavier a little bit, and then we won't have to have them be broken and be fixed. That is the other reason to get carbon, though, is that aerodynamic mm. thing. Kind of hard to get an aero tie bike. Well, no, you just have to you know get some... <laughs> Get some, you know, some Play-Doh and kind of like, you know, make your own truncated airfoil on the back. Of, like, you know, you can't do that, can you? That's what I, that's what we should do. In in my my friend group Strava competition this week, I lost by two seconds over the course of two different segments that were each about five minutes long, and I am blaming my titanium. And now you were going to head out cables. and do those same sessions, those same sections on your venge. Cool. <laughs> Skin so fast. Skin suit, aero helmet, <laughs> booties. All right, Kaylee. Dish wheels. Well, make it happen. you know, it is still pretty early in the day-ish here. We've got plenty of daylight left. You should hop out on your fancy aero bike and see if you can go take those KOMs from your buddies. And then let's maybe check back in a couple weeks and see what happens. We'll, we'll see. I'll just get around the mosaic. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, I... I'll just well, put I out more on that note, I think we should wrap it up. What do you think? Let's call it a day. Yep. Time to call it a day. Well, thanks for listening as always. And also, as always, please, if you like what you heard, consider giving us a review. Make sure you subscribe. Tell your buddies about our podcast because the more listeners, the better. And otherwise, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Ciao.